0: It uh, may not seem like it, but we are actually in the study of 1 Timothy, and we are in chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 8 through 15. However, we won't be talking about those verses today. This is the second Sunday on the same topic, and uh, apparently, if we all get back together, Lord wills, uh, we will do a third Sunday when we will actually talk about the verses I'm going to read. I've never taught on the uh, role of women in the church, so to do that, I, as I started to prepare for this First Timothy section in uh, chapter 2, I thought it would be reasonable to look at some of the other scriptures that deal with this topic and uh, help us think through this in a larger way than just what uh, Paul says in First Timothy chapter 2 but I want to read starting at verse 8 through er, verse 15 therefore I want the men in every place to pray lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension of course you can't lift up holy hands without living a holy life you can lift your hands up but uh, to lift up holy hands you have to be living a holy life verse 9 Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self restraint. It is my recommendation that we look at these verses as promoting and protecting the spiritual health of the church the spiritual health of the individuals in the church and the integrity of what is taught in the church and I hope that we can see that last part more clearly when we actually talk about the verses I just read last Sunday we talked about the God-ordained equality that exists between men and women and the hierarchy Uh, of authority that exists in various forms in our world, in the church, and in the home. And my goal last Sunday was to help us see that there is both equality as well as a hierarchy of authority, and the two, by God's uh, creation, are to coexist, uh, work together. We also talked about the fact that equality and authority, uh, and authority, not only can coexist, but they ought to coexist in a proper way, according to the will and word of God. Um, today, we're going to continue looking at what the scripture has to say, that the Bible teaches surrounding the role of women in the church, uh, and we're going to do this to further our understanding before looking at 1 Timothy chapter 2. So today we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 3-12, through 12, and 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 26-35. through 35. So with that in mind, let's pray. Although you know the thoughts and fears and controversy that surrounds this particular topic. You know its proper use and its abuse. And it is my prayer that you would speak to us today, give us insight and understanding that we might see your way and why it is truly the right way, the good way, and how it can work. I pray this in Christ's name, amen. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11 starts for what we're going to talk about today at verse 3. And here's what Paul writes. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. In verses 3 through 7, which we're going to look at each of the verses as we go through this section, in verses 3 through 7, Paul is using a logical argument to show that women are allowed to speak in the church under certain conditions. Here in verse 3, he affirms the hierarchy of authority. And that hierarchy is to be practiced in church life, because church life is the emphasis here in verses 3 through 12. But I would also add that that hierarchy uh, is also to be practiced in the home. So here's the hierarchy. Christ is under the leadership of God. Men are under the leadership of Christ, who is answerable to God. And women are under the leadership of men, who are answerable to Christ, who is answerable to God. So in the end, or in other words, all are answerable to God. doesn't matter male or female, or where you are, the hierarchy of authority all of us are answerable to God and just to give you an example of this I think of corporations where there are many levels of authority uh, from low level managers to the CEO and under even the lowest level managers there are workers who uh, are not in management but have to answer to somebody Uh, and though everyone in the corporation is answerable to the CEO most of the people in any corporation are directly answerable to the managers or leadership or bosses directly over them. In the church, since all are answerable to God, as they are in the home also, all are to do the will of God. That's the expected intent. Regarding the hierarchy of authority in the church, God's will is that those in authority would do his will and those under authority would do the will of those in authority over them. So if those in authority are doing the will of God and those under authority are doing the will of God, then everyone is doing the will of God. And So how we treat those under our leadership and how we respond to those over us is either according to the will of God or it's not. And in that sense, it either positively or negatively affects the spiritual health of the church. It affects the way we love one another. And it affects what kind of glory, good or bad, we bring to God himself. How we make God look in the world around us. Verse 4 First 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. So after affirming the hierarchy of authority, in verses 4 through 7, Paul confirms our obligation to bring honor or glory to the one in authority over us. The man is to bring honor and glory to God in the church meeting. Mind you, he's talking about the church here not the home. We can apply these truths to the home and we ought, but he's specifically talking about the church here. So the man is to bring honor and glory to God in the church meetings, and to do so, he is to keep his head uncovered while praying or prophesying. For the man to wear a head covering of some sort uh, is to bring disgrace upon those in authority over him from church leadership to Jesus Christ and ultimately God himself. Historically, because of chivalry and the whole submission to a king and how we would treat a king, a man would never wear a hat in the presence of a king because the king would have a crown and everybody else would have their head bare. And that was to show that only the king was in authority. He was the top person. Uh, Paul is writing us and telling us that for a man to have something on his head in the church meeting shows dishonor to God not for the same reasons as we would not wear a hat in the presence of of a king and by the way the king would always be higher than everybody else that's why he sat on a throne that was lifted up uh, not just on the same level as everybody else Uh, when you went into his presence other than to have a Meeting on the battlefield, you always bow down to show deference, to show respect, and you would take your hat off. What Paul is saying here is that to bring honor to God in the church meetings, the man is to have his head free of any covering, just the hair on his head. Verse 5, But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. The word head here is used several times in in these verses. And in this case, the word head refers to the one in authority over the woman. So, every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. However, if it's disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head when praying or prophesying in a church meeting. I know we live in a culture where women can shave their head and it's just an accepted practice. But the point is that Paul is making is for the woman, an uncovered head is disrespectful or fails to show a proper respect and bring glory to the one who is over her. So the point is, is that for the woman to bring honor and glory to those over her, she is to have her head covered. For the man, he is to keep his head uncovered. And I want to make the point here that this is not about being equal or unequal. This is about showing respect and bringing glory to those in authority over us, both for the man and for the woman. Verse 7, and just the first part of verse 7, For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. Again, as I stated, verses 4 through 7, Paul is working out this logic and helping us see what his reasoning is. So this first part of verse 7 says, In essence, God created Adam, uh, and... He is in the image and glory of God. Well, God created Adam from what? The dust of the earth. And he made Adam in his own image. And in that sense, Adam is directly responsible to God. It was to Adam that God said, you are to have rulership over all the earth. And name the animals, do whatever else was the responsibility and so to bring glory to God, Adam is to do that through his behavior. So, Think about that. It is through our behavior that we show respect and bring glory to those above us. To bring glory to God, Adam was to do that by his behavior. Which includes, in this instance, praying and prophesying in church with an uncovered head. Now, let me just add this. This isn't part of the text, but it is the point I want to add. If a man prays and prophesies in church meetings with an uncovered head, which is to do the right thing, yet fails to love his wife as he ought, he is not honoring or bringing glory to God. Rather, he is dishonoring God by pretending to be godly in church, while pridefully and selfishly taking advantage of his position of authority in the home. One of the things that is very easy within Christianity is to learn the outward manifestations of the faith and do those things as if that's what sets us apart as Christians. What we don't understand is that most of the things that we do as Christians, the traditions that we have, came about because godly people wanted to express their faith, their godliness, their love of God, their worship of God, their awe of God, and their service to God. And so they develop these things, and then, several generations later, we come along and we say, well, if we do these things, then we must be godly. That is not the case. And so, a man can keep his head uncovered in church, not love his wife properly at home, and All of us at church think, wow, this is a godly guy, but that doesn't make him godly. The second half of 7 talks to the woman. But the woman is the glory of man. Because the woman is the glory of man, she is to cover her head when praying or prophesying in church meeting, to show respect for and bring glory to those in authority over her. And this just follows the same requirement that is required of the men. They with an uncovered head, the woman with a covered head. And just as the godly man and husband is to reflect God while in the church meeting by his behavior, so the woman, in the same way, is to reflect men in general and have married her husband specifically by her behavior the man with his head uncovered the woman with her head covered and as with the man if a woman prays and prophesies in church meetings with her head covered which would make her look godly yet fails to love her husband as she ought she's a hypocrite just like the man is because she is pretending to respect her head at church while disrespecting him at home. And once again, this is not about equality. Equality is one issue, as we talked about last week. This is about respecting and bringing glory to those in authority over you. It's about the hierarchy of authority which coexists with equality. Verse 8. The man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. In verses 8-10, through Paul begins a second line of reasoning to support his point. And this time he uses, first of all, the order in which the man and his uh, wife, the woman, were created. And secondly, the means by which they were created, which is different. And third, the purpose for which they were created. So we'll look at those three things. We know from Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 and verses 15 through 17 that God created man first and God created Adam from the dust of the earth. And we know from Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 23 that God created woman second and God created her from a rib of the man. And it is in this way that the first woman originated from the first man. Verse 9. For indeed man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. In Genesis chapter two eighteen, we read these words, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable to him. In other words... The woman was made from man and for man. Verse 10, therefore, because man was made first and the woman was made for man, this is Paul's reasoning, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head when praying or prophesying in church in order to show respect to the one who was created first and for whom she was created. And then Paul adds these words, because of the angels. Now the last part of verse 10, the words because of the angels, is one of the more difficult statements in the Bible to make sense of, and especially within this context. And the the truth for me is that I can't make any sense of it. I don't know what it actually means. If you do, you could share that with us at the end and fill us in, but uh, I haven't got the answer to that. And anything that I've read on it, nobody else does either. Uh, at least nobody that I've read. On it. So, what I'm just going to say about those words because of the angels is this The angels possibly represent a group in the hierarchy of authority who are below God but higher than man. And it is believed or was believed in the early church that the angels were always in attendance at the worship meetings. So take that for what you would like. That's the best I can do with it. The principle that we can gain from verse 10 is that anyone who prays or prophesies in a church meeting is to do so in a manner that respects and brings glory to those in authority over them. And in verse 10, this principle is being directly applied to women, though it also applies to the rest of us. And I would remind you that prophecy, even in the Old Testament, is not just about foretelling the future. It's also what's called forthtelling, or teaching, exhorting, correcting, warning, that's all part of prophecy. And so men and women were part of the prophetic work within the body of Christ, going back to the first church. Verse 11. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. So we're back to the equality issue. For as the woman originates from the man, remember she was made from his rib, so also the man has his birth through the woman. After Adam, there was no male that could ever come into this world apart from being born by a mother. And all things originate from God. So Paul concludes this part of his exhortation about showing respect and bringing glory to those over us men are to do that as well as the ladies, by reminding us of the God-ordained equality that exists between men and women whether it is the men and women in the church or a husband and wife at home and in my opinion Paul includes these verses at the end of this section so that The men and the women will have the right attitude toward each other and will treat each other, including one's spouse, in the way that glorifies God. And Paul argues that this is part of the Christian life because we all originate from God. We all have an equality in God. And so, for men to mistreat women, or for women to mistreat men, it's not only a failure to love our neighbor as ourselves, but it is a show of disrespect for God, our Creator. It brings dishonor on God, our Father. And it is a form of rebellion against God's authority over us. So my exhortation to us, in light of 1 Corinthians 11, is that we would wisely and intentionally make God's treatment of us the example and God's word the measurement of how we treat each other in the church and in the home. And once again, our purpose in examining 1 Corinthians 11, 3-12, is to show that God allows women to speak in the church under certain conditions. And this is important because it is a truth that we will be taking into account when examining 1 Timothy chapter 2. Alright, I said we'd also look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 26 through 35. And 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 26 to 35, seems to contradict what we just looked at in 1 Corinthians 11. In that 1 Corinthians 11 supports women praying and prophesying in church, in other words, not remaining silent, but being free to speak. While 1 Corinthians 14 clearly says women are to keep silent. So, to deal with this seeming contradiction, I want us to work through 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 26 to 35. But we will do it with far less explanation because we've already laid the groundwork for at least in my opinion a proper perspective on the equality of men and women and a proper perspective on the hierarchy of authority and a proper perspective on our duty to show respect to those in authority over us both male and female. So verse 26 of First Corinthians chapter 14 Paul writes these words. What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. So he didn't say just the men, he said each one. And that applies to everybody in the meeting. Each one can have these things. But then he makes this point, and this is an important point to keep in mind as we work through this. Let all things be done for edification. In other words, to build up the body of Christ. It is very easy to speak up in church because you want to be heard. And that's for yourself, not for building up others. It's to build up your own reputation. It's to make yourself look better. I know about that because that was something I wanted at one time. And it's part of our nature to want to be important. But the focus should be the edification of the body of Christ, building up each other. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul makes the point that you have apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the building up of the saints, for the equipping of the saints, he says, so that they can do the work of service. And if we're all being built up, then we can all make a contribution to the good of the whole body. Verse 27, If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three. Notice the number because the number is somewhat important to the next part we're going to get to. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. So if you are going to speak in tongues in the meeting and there isn't someone to interpret, then you are to remain silent. And the inference at least appears, to me it's clear, but it may only appear that way to you, the inference at least appears that the one who is going to speak in tongues knows if there's somebody there who can and will interpret. And so the person who's going to speak On that basis, knows whether they ought to or whether they ought not. Verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak. Remember, 1 Corinthians indicates both men and women can prophesy in the church meeting. So let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment, passing judgment as to whether what was spoken was actually from God and in agreement with the scriptures and the teaching of the apostles. So the probable situation in that setting is that in advance of a church meeting, several members with the gift of prophecy, the gift of teaching, the gift of exhortation, would be asked to speak. Now remember, the max was three. Speaking in tongues, three at the most, Paul says. Prophesying, teaching, exhorting, what have you, three at the most. Yeah. So it's possible that they would select three people in advance to come to the meeting and speak. And again, prophecy is more than foretelling, it's also forth telling. So during the meeting, Paul says that others, whoever those others are, we aren't certain but those others might be limited to those with the gift of prophecy, or it could include those, at least in a church where I was pastoring, I would want it to include those with the depth of knowledge and spiritual maturity to pass judgment on what was taught. I have sat in a number of church meetings where people were uh, invited and allowed To stand up and speak and enough of what was said was in my opinion so far off the track that it was to the detriment of the whole body. They should have never been allowed to speak and if they were going to be allowed to speak there should have been correction from the front about what was said so that the whole body uh, could know whether it was to be taken seriously or if it was (coughs) off So Paul's saying here that two or three prophets can speak and others will pass judgment on what is said. So, two or three, let's consider the possibility that in advance of the meeting they were selected and then others would decide if what was taught was within the accepted range of teaching per the scriptures and per what the apostles were teaching. In, in my opinion, we should do this. And in my opinion, they did it to protect the integrity of the message and the spiritual health of the church. Now, we know from 1 Timothy that Paul was concerned about the integrity of the message. So I think it's certainly legitimate to bring in the idea that this was done to protect the integrity of the message. And if you protect that, you are protecting the spiritual health of the church. All right, verse 30. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of prophets are subject to the prophets, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And then the New American Standard adds this phrase in verse 33, as in all the churches of the saints. Now, I realized that the gentleman that divided the New Testament, and actually the Old 2, into verses, was riding on a horse over a several days journey and working through a Bible without verse separations or chapter separations, making the separations. And this would be one place where I personally would say that he missed it. Uh, as in all the churches of the saints, in my opinion, is better placed with verse 34. And since God didn't put those numbers in there, I don't feel bad about questioning his, uh, his choice. All right, so verse 33, in essence tell us that if a prophet who wasn't designated to speak received a revelation from God during the meeting, He was to take the place of one of the designated speakers. Verse 34. I'm going to start it the way I would like it started. As in all the churches of the saints, the women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. Now, without any question, it seems Paul is contradicting himself per what he said in chapter 11. I don't think so, and here's why. In chapter 11, Paul's emphasis is on maintaining a godly respect for the one in the hierarchy of authority, the one that's over you. And within that setting, women were allowed to pray and prophesy, but were to do so with their head covered. And so, if that teaching applies here, and in my opinion it ought, then it is reasonable to assume that the requirement for women to remain silent per this verse refers not to them being silent completely, not being able to talk at all in the church service, but has to do with openly passing judgment during the meeting on the men who did the teaching. Now, whatever you think of that, that's up to you. But that's the way I would understand, I do understand what Paul is saying here. And if, in addition, we apply 1 Timothy 2, verse 12 to verse 34 of 1 Corinthians 14, which is about, and the 1 Timothy 2 portion is about not allowing a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, then we can conclude that at least in some church meetings, only men with the gift of prophecy would be a designated speaker and only men who could openly judge what was taught would do the judging. And yet, a woman could still prophesy in those meetings. They wouldn't be a designated speaker. So, How do we work all this out? The important thing, as I read both these chapters from 1 Corinthians, related to women, is that they are not to usurp or treat with disrespect or bring dishonor on the hierarchy of authority that exists in the church meeting and... They protect that. They, they maintain that honor, that respect, bringing glory in the right way by keeping their head covering and not questioning or contradicting or saying that what the man has taught is wrong. That's left up to the men. Verse 35. Therefore, if the woman desires to learn anything... And I'm going to add regarding what the designated teacher taught or the judgments concerning what was taught, they are to ask their own husbands at home because that is, in that way, they maintain a proper respect for the hierarchy of authority. Does that mean they can't question what was taught? No. But in the meeting, they remain silent and they let the men question what was taught. And here's the reasoning for it is improper. For a woman to speak in church, that is to openly pass judgment on or question what the designated teacher taught. Alright, so with those two chapters in mind, we will eventually look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. I want to finish by saying this. What has been presented today is my understanding of what these two scriptures teach concerning the role of women in church meetings. So, Whether you agree, in part or in whole, my encouragement to you is to read, ponder, and ask God for wisdom and insight into what God's Word says about men and women in the life of the church. I realize that, at least in my time, the role of women in the church has been a controversial topic. We certainly have debated it within our own fellowship. And for me, it is unwise to ignore this topic, as if by ignoring it somehow... We won't have any conflicts over it. It'll just somehow melt away or go away. It's not going to go away. It's a real issue. It is unwise to explain it away, to come up with some novel explanation as if the Bible isn't saying what it's really saying. And it's unwise to alter the scriptures to fit what you prefer them to say. But it is also unwise... To think that God is wrong because some men have abused their position of authority. That doesn't make God wrong. That makes us men wrong. And so I would urge all of us to keep that in mind as well. And my final statement is this. Just as we trust God for eternal salvation, something we've never seen, only heard about, nobody's ever come back from, But we Christians are convinced it exists. And I'm not saying it doesn't at all. It does. I'm convinced also. So just as we trust God in that convinced kind of way for eternal salvation, let us trust him to require of us what is best for us. And to bring a proper understanding and practical application to what he requires. That he would explain to us, that he would help us understand how to live this out and that he would empower us to live accordingly and protect us as we do.